Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming tonight. Well, we were this close to not having service this evening because we didn't have power here at the church for about three hours this afternoon. So I got a text at about five till five, said it was back on. So had enough time for it to cool down. But I'm glad that you're here and glad that we could gather together and uh, meet tonight. Let's bow before the Lord and just uh, ask his blessings and uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for how good and gracious you have been to us. Lord, you are a loving father and you have adopted us into your family, even though we are unworthy and we are sinful. Yet, Lord, you lavish your grace and your mercy upon us. We thank you for Christ, our Redeemer. We thank you for his life and what he has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection and his ongoing intercession before, uh, for us at your right hand. Lord, we ask that tonight as we uh, study together that you would give us wisdom and insight into the truths of your word. Uh, Lord, draw us near to you. And Father, as we pray, help us to do so in such a way that uh, we uh, share uh, the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ and bring them before your throne and uh, that uh, in our prayers that you would be honored and glorified. And we pray this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, tonight we're continuing our study of Created to Draw Near, and we're moving into chapter two of our study tonight in God's image. And he begins the chapter by uh, uh, referring to Genesis 1.26 in the opening account of creation Genesis 1:26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so he makes the point that Genesis 1:26 makes that we are created in God's image. Of course, going back to last week in the opening chapter, we see the, the theme that he's setting out for the whole book, which is that we are priests of God. And as priests of God, we were made uh, to draw near to him, to be close to God in fellowship and in relationship to him. And then like a priest uh, to represent God to the world. And a part of that uh, being near to God and also of representing God to the world is our unique creation in God's image. And so we are to bear uh, the image of God. And, and really this, uh, this idea of bearing the image of God is in some sense to be like God. And because we are like God in certain respects, we have the capacity to grow in a relationship with him. Humanity is different from everything else in creation, isn't it? Everything else in creation, while it is designed to uh, manifest, to reflect the glory of God, uh, really as human beings, we are unique in that we are made to reflect God's glory in every possible way that a finite creature can. So we are... In essence, I think one way of thinking about us being made in the likeness or, or in the image of God is in essence, if you were to take some of the, the aspects of God's being that are infinite and to translate them into a, a finite creature, 
that is who we are. And so God has knowledge. We have knowledge, but not anywhere near to the degree of the knowledge that God has. God has wisdom. We have the ability to use and apply wisdom, but nowhere near like the infinite wisdom of God. We have uh, relational abilities, the ability to communicate in rational language. We have the ability to love, to show emotion. All of these come from God. But in God, they are perfect. They're infinite. In us, even before sin, they're still finite, right? They're, they're creaturely. So God is the creator. We are the creature. So there's a distinction there. But we are made to reflect God in, in many senses to be like him. And he said, one of the amazing things about this statement is that this is the Genesis is a book of Moses, right? Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So when the people of Israel are hearing for the first time, Genesis 1:26, that we are made in the image of God, it is after they have come out of Egypt and slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. And he says, what, what a thing to hear if you're Israelites who have just come out of slavery in Egypt, and now you are being told that you, all of humanity, all of mankind, is being made in the image of God. Because in um, the religion of Egypt, Pharaoh was said to be an image of the gods. So the only representative of the gods in Egyptian religious life was the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was said to be like the embodiment or the image or the likeness of the gods. Everyone else were his servants. And he was the lone representative of God. But then you have Genesis 1.26 that says, no, all of humanity is intended to be image bearers of God. So in the theology of the Bible, we are all as human beings given this dignity, being images of God and designed to relate in a, in a close, intimate, uh, relational way to our creator God. In Genesis 5, in verse 3, we see this um, language of image being used again when it says that Adam had lived 130 years and he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. That word likeness, that word image, is the same one, same two words that are used in Genesis 1.26 of God making mankind. Here it says that Adam had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So this helps us in some ways to understand what it means to be made in the image of God. Because Seth was like Adam, wasn't he? In fact, we can even say this now. When uh, a child is born, that child bears many resemblances to their parents, don't they? Uh, they bear resemblance physically, in physical appearance, but even in personality and mannerisms and things like that, in many ways, they look like little versions, little copies of their parents, especially when they're young. And so that idea of having a son in his own image, in his likeness, 
And if we take that back and understand, bring that understanding into Genesis 1.26, we get the idea that we are images of God in the sense that he is our father and we are his offspring. God made us. Just as a child reflects the likeness of the parents, so we reflect the likeness of our creator God. We are his offspring. And so we experience then a likeness or a kinship to God that uniquely qualifies us for a relationship with him, unlike anything else in all of creation. Isn't it true that as a parent, you have a special relationship with your child that no one else can have? There is a bond there. There's a relationship there that you have with your child that that no one else can have. So we are God's offspring. We are his handiwork. And he made us to have this kind of close relationship with him. And so he says in the chapter, we can represent God to the world. We can participate in his purposes and we can imitate him. Of all creation, we share the closest kinship with God. So we alone can know him and be known by him in the most intimate of ways that is higher, special, unique than anything else in the created realm. And so we alone have the capacity to live in God and he in us in this unique way, which may be this idea of being in the image of God and having this unique relationship with God is what the psalmist had in mind in Psalm 8, 5, when he said, you have made them, that is human beings, a little lower than the angels and crown them with glory and honor. So we are not the stars. Psalm 8 begins with the psalmist looking at the stars of the sky. It says, when I count the stars, when I look at the skies, when I see the, the, the hugeness of this created universe, and then I look at man, what is man that you would consider him? Just a mortal, that you would take notice of him. And yet, he says in verse 5 of Psalm 8, you've crowned him with glory and honor as the height, as the pinnacle of God's creative work. And so we are priests, the very offspring of God who share in his likeness. And as his priests, as his representatives to the world, as his offspring bearing his likeness, we have a mission. And we see uh, glimpses of that mission in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The idea is with Eden as the epicenter, we are to be sent out to tame the untamed world. We were called to claim it for the Lord, to work it and to keep it. There was much to do. Uh, do you remember what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says? It says, let us make mankind in our likeness, in our own image, and then let them what? Let them have dominion, right? Let them rule. Let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over everything that walks upon the face of the earth. Mankind was made in the image of God for a mission, for a, to have a role, a responsibility to play in ruling over the world, taming the world. To, God told Adam to work and keep the garden. And then by extension, to move out from there and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the whole world 
under the glory of God. And so our mission was to imitate God, to represent God in the world. And being fruitful and filling the earth was a part of that mandate, a part of that mission. In reproducing other image bearers of God, we were called to expand the boundaries of Eden to the ends of the earth, to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. And the New Testament picks up on this when Jesus says, now you, my disciples, go out into all the world and make disciples. The Great Commission is kind of like the New Testament version of be fruitful and multiply. Go into all the world and make disciples and bring the glory of the Lord to the ends of the earth. And so we are priests of God and being made in the image of God and all that that means, all that that entails goes hand in hand with that identity as priests, goes together with the close relationship that we have with God as his offspring and image bearers, and then also goes closely together with our mission that we have in the world to represent God to the whole earth. Chapter three, I don't know if you had a chance to get there. Last week I mentioned I was gonna try to cover maybe two chapters a week just because they're shorter. But in chapter three, he moves a little bit more forward in the story of Genesis. In chapter two of Genesis, and we see Adam and Eve having been made, created by God. And we get this reference in Genesis two that they were naked and not ashamed. And now he makes a couple of statements here in chapter three that I I wasn't sure about. And and I was, I was thinking about the way that he discussed it in chapter three. And I kind of wanted to get your thoughts and put on it. But in chapter three, under this heading of naked and not ashamed, he says, God always intended to dress us. And then he makes the statement that the announcement that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed points to the need for clothing that would come with maturity. I thought about that in the way that he was describing it. And I'm not sure that I agree Um, because with that, the way that he explains it in that portion would give the idea that being naked and not ashamed was not a good thing, that it was something incomplete, that it was something, there was something wrong with it that needed more. It was, it was, it was imperfect, if you will. And that's not the way I read Genesis 2. When I, when I read Genesis 2 and I, and I read it where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, I don't read it as, hey, they need clothes. I read it as, no, they're in a state of innocence and perfection. And their physical nakedness is uh, really a metaphor for the fact that they're open and unashamed and have no barriers in their relationship between one another. Uh, The fact that they're able to be naked and not ashamed means no guilt has entered into the picture yet. And so I take Genesis 2.25 where it says that Adam and Eve were naked in each other's presence and not ashamed. I take that in a very positive sense, in a very innocent sense, not like they were lacking anything. And so when he says that they 
that their state of nakedness means that they're incomplete and they needed to mature. And when they would mature, they would get clothes. I don't read it that way. I see it as, no, this is something good. And in fact, I looked up just because I wanted to see if I was on the right track. I looked up about four commentaries on Genesis 2.25 just to see what they said about it. And uh, this is H.C. Uh, Leupold in his commentary. He's an older commentator. Uh, in verse 25, he says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, but they felt no shame. He says, In this brief statement, one more feature is added to the picture of the primeval state of perfection. Nothing had transpired to rouse in man a sense of guilt. For to feel no shame is in a perfect state due to having no occasion to feel shame. Everything was at harmony, and man was in complete harmony with himself and with his God. That's the way I've always taken that verse in Genesis 2.25. And so I'm, I'm not fully on the same page with him when he says, when it says they're naked and not ashamed, they need clothes. Why would he say that? What is he, what is he may try to make that point here in this chapter? I, I think in essence, what he's doing is he's getting the cart before the horse just a little bit. Because as you read forward in scripture, pretty much from Genesis 3 onward, nakedness does become a picture of guilt and shame. So in moving forward from Genesis 3 onward through the rest of the Bible, it's not good to be naked because that's a sign of shame or of guilt. But in Genesis 2, in this state of perfection, of innocence, there's no guilt. There's nothing needed to, to separate them. Uh, from one another. They were completely open and unashamed before one another. And also too, as you move forward in scripture, we do see clothing becoming a very important theme in scripture. And especially in the the aspects of being God's people, being God's special people, uh, you see clothing being a, a very important part of that. So the Israelites when they dressed, there were actually laws in the, the Levitical, the Exodus laws about how they were to dress. And one of the laws that, that they had was they were not supposed to wear garments of mixed type of cloth. So they couldn't have a cotton wool blend. They had to have a robe that was all wool or all cotton. They, didn't, they weren't supposed to mix together. And I take that to be a symbol of the fact that God had set them apart from the nations. They weren't supposed to intermingle with the Gentile peoples and the pagan ways of the Gentiles. They were supposed to be pure and their clothing was supposed to represent that. You go, you look at the, the robes in Exodus that are to become the priestly robes of the priests. Those are special, aren't they? Those are unique. Those are intended to be holy, set apart. And, and you run through then the rest of scripture and you see where clothing serves very important roles uh, in terms of the relationship of that person to that person's position, to that person's role, and even in that person's role before God. Even to the point where in the book of Revelation, where we see in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, we see God's people robed in white raiment, right? In white clothing. So I get the idea of where he's going with the idea of us being priests and wearing priestly robes and having 
white robes of linen like are talked about in Revelation. So I see where he's going with this theme of the importance of being dressed and representing God to the world as his priests. But I think he just jumps the gun just a little bit in Genesis 2.25 when he says that their state of nakedness wasn't good because I think it was. I think God made them that way and, and that's this condition that they were in, in a state of perfection and they felt no shame. So I think he gets just a little bit ahead of the theme of clothing as it unfolds in scripture, but we're not quite there yet in Genesis 2.25. But then he does go on and describe the idea of royal robes. And so he says, when kings ascend to their thrones, they wear majestic garments. When priests were installed, they were invested with royal robes. And so we see this theme in scripture that with new status comes new clothes. And I was reminded of Zechariah chapter three. In Zechariah three, there's this vision that Zechariah has of uh, Joshua the high priest who is standing before the Lord in kind of like a, a tribunal or a judge courtroom scene. And Joshua the high priest is standing there in filthy, disgusting clothes. And Satan comes to accuse him and says, this person is not worthy to be a priest. This person is not worthy to be uh, forgiven by you. And, and in Zechariah 3, God silences Satan and God says, take off his filthy robes and replace them with clean robes. And that is a symbol of his sin being removed and being replaced with righteousness. And in that being replaced with righteous garments, garments of a priest, it says, then put a turban on his head, a priestly turban. And God is saying, no, I have chosen him. I have forgiven him. I have made him white, clean, and he is going to serve me as a priest. And so that theme of clothing and, and royal robes and priestly robes and representing God to the world, it is a theme that unfolds throughout scripture. And we see this idea that with new status comes new raiment, new clothes. We even see in the parable of the prodigal son, right? When he comes back, his father forgives him and he says what? Get him a change of clothes, put new sandals on his feet, get him a ring. And so there's kind of a, a picture of a new status, new forgiven status. With new status comes new clothes. And then he says, humanity's task was to grow in wisdom and with wisdom would come investiture and robes of righteousness. The idea of investiture there is priestly robes of bearing God to the world. And a part of that bearing God to the world and the, the priestly royal robes is beauty and glory. He says beauty is a part of the priestly package. If we are close to God, it can be no other way. As humanity matured into its mission, their role would be manifested in adorned beauty. And we see that theme, we do see that theme unfold throughout scripture, that those who stand before God are adorned in white, beautiful, clean robes. And those who minister in the tabernacle or in the temple, they, are, they wear sacred, beautiful, beautifully adorned garments. We see an image of it in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I delight greatly in the Lord. 
my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So this is in Isaiah 61, an image of salvation, that we are now gods, that we belong to him. And with that new raiment, new clothing to represent our beauty before the Lord. And so the path toward this beautification was straightforward in Genesis. Here was their path. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That was the path to glory, to wisdom. But we know that they failed in that. The path toward beauty, honor, and and communion with God was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do this and live. But then he closes the chapter with this statement. He says, the path that man chose veered from this path. We know what Adam and Eve did. They took from the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the beautification project that God had in store went on, didn't it? So Adam and Eve did not thwart in any way God's beautification of his people. It went forward because it was not going to rely on man's obedience and best efforts, but solely on God's pursuit. That we see very clearly symbolized after Adam and Eve sinned. And God says, no, you're not going to wear that. You're going to wear this. And he makes them garments out of animal skins, out of a sacrifice that he had made. I think communicating to Adam and Eve, you can't fix your problem. You can't cover up your own faults, your own guilt. Only I can do that through sacrifice. And so though Adam and Eve sinned, and then their nakedness did become a sign of guilt and shame, but God's plan of still having those who would be near him, having priests to represent him before the world, of having people who were like him, that plan was not thwarted. But now he was going to do it by his grace, for his glory, and he was going to rescue sinners, disobedient, fallen people, not by their righteousness, not by their works, but by his grace, by his work on their behalf. And so we veered from the path that God laid out for us, but God's purposes were not thwarted. And he was going to bring us back home through his efforts, through his pursuit. Um, what do you all think? Do you all have any, any thoughts, any, any comments? What do you all think about Genesis 2.25? I kind of rushed past that, but I want to get your thoughts on it. What do you think about Genesis 2.25, where, where he was saying that um, when it says they were naked and not ashamed, that, that that was just kind of in waiting for them needing to be clothed? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it was not something they even knew the difference, right? Uh, that's just how they were. That's how God made them. It's, I, I get the idea in Genesis 1 and 2 that, that there was nothing lacking in God's creation. 
you know, so he can see at the end of Genesis 1, he looked on everything that he had made and he says, it's very good. So uh, I, I understand where he's going with that theme of clothing and of robes representing our status before God. I think maybe he just got just a little bit ahead of where that theme starts to unfold in the Bible. I'm not convinced it starts in Genesis 2.25. Probably starts after the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't see how it would have been any more perfect for them. You know, if you're already in a state of perfection, you know, without sin. So I, I'm just, I'm not convinced that that that's the right reading of Genesis 2:25. But, but I think that that theme of God needing to clothe us, and therefore uh, give us a new identity with that clothing, I think that comes in very soon in the story, but after the fall, uh, after they, they've tried to sow fig leaves and yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, and then God, God says, no, I'm gonna make you close. And so I think that theme of God clothing us and making us his people and his representatives, that's a very legitimate biblical theme, but I think it starts in Genesis three, like you were saying, not not in Genesis 2, but it's a, it's a subtle point, but hey, that's, we're studying it, right? So, well, I, I hope that this is helpful to you. And, and he, if you have a chance, as you read the book, um, at the end of each chapter, he has just a couple of questions that are kind of like responses. And, and those are very helpful because the things that he does in those responses is he makes us think about what is this, how does this truth that I'm a priest of God, being an image bearer of God, how does that change my, my outlook on how I interact with the world, how I interact with my family or my church family? How does that, how does that change how I view myself, you know, as, as a priest, as, a, as an image bearer of God? And so um, those, those questions are really helpful and, and I would encourage you to take a look at those. Uh, let's just bow before the Lord and, and ask him to, to uh, apply this word uh, to our hearts. Father, we thank you for your grace and for the opportunity to study uh, this tonight. Uh, I pray that as we walk through this study, that we would see how this theme runs through scripture and how you have designed for us to be uh, close to you to be your image bearers, to be like you, and to relate to you in a very special, unique way that nothing else in creation can. Father, may we take to heart uh, our special role as a priesthood of believers, uh, to be your royal priests in the world. And may we bear you, represent you before the world. And in so doing, Lord, uh, extend your glory to the ends of the earth. And Father, we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.